This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about Game of Thrones on HBO, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks A Song of Ice and Fire books, it talks in the context of the most recently released book by George R. R. Martin. You've been warned. Coming at you on a Thursday cast. It's episode four of the podcast where we're covering episode four of Game of Thrones, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, written by Brian Cogman, directed by Brian Kirk. And all of the information about our musicians who appear on the podcast is available in the show notes. Please support them. Go buy their stuff. So welcome to Matt's Game of Thrones blog or Matt's audio blog, Game of Thrones style. I'm Matt, and remember you can always contact me with any suggestions or anything by emailing mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com. Or you can tweet to at Matt's G-O-T blog. That's M-A-T-T-S G-O-T blog. Everything that I do in regards to podcasting or have done in the past in regards to podcasting can be found at mattsaudioblog.com. One last time, that's M-A-T-T-S, audioblog.com. And there's something I really need your help with, and that is I'm not showing up in any of the search results in any of the podcast apps. I think that's simply because I haven't gotten enough people subscribed and I haven't gotten enough people leaving written reviews. So if you're listening to this podcast, whatever podcast app you're listening to it on, be that, you know, Apple Podcasts, which, you know, is really just iTunes. Why do we have to call it Apple Podcasts? Anyway, if you're listening to me on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it, if you're listening to me on Stitcher or whatever, please use the subscribe button and please leave me a written review. That's the only way that I'm going to jump up into the search results. Um, I guess there's a limited number of search results that you can get now with some of these things, and I'm not there yet. And I want to be there because I want to build us a community around here. Speaking of building a community, that's how you can help build a community. We can make the show better together by leaving a written review. You can tell me what you like or dislike about the show. And I can hopefully make some improvements one way or the other with the good ideas, the ideas that I agree with. Maybe even some of the ideas I don't agree with, but know it's best for the show. Anyway, I really appreciate it if you could just leave me a written review on whatever app that you're listening to this on. Or seek it out on whatever apps that you have uh, a username with. And that you seek it out by just typing in Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. That's Matt's M-A-T-T apostrophe S audio blog. And it should pop up in your search engine that way. It will if you specifically call it up by name. But not if you just type in, say, like Game of Thrones. Okay, that's enough of the begging. And once again, just want to remind you, we'll never advertise on this podcast, but I do expect your help in getting promoted by you doing what I just asked you to do. Um, that's a deal, right? Takes you five minutes, takes me a couple hours to make every podcast. So there you go. Um, that's, uh, that's the deal that we make. I do most of the work. On Thursdays, we get into the music 
of the episode before we talk about the analysis of the episode. So we are now going to talk about Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things as Season 1, Episode 4, written by Brian Cogman and directed by Brian Kirk. Two Brian's different spellings of Brian. Uh, but that doesn't matter because the guy we're going to talk about first, his name is Ramin, Ramin Javadi, and his music for this episode. An analysis of the music in HBO's Game of Thrones. And so Daenerys and Ser Jorah and Viserys enter Vase Dothrak. The music that is playing here as that happens as they go under the two large horse statues, which become even much larger when they reappear again in season six. Or maybe it's a different entrance. We can say it's a different entrance that Danny goes through in season six than the ones that these guys go through because they really look nothing alike. But nonetheless, we will just uh, say that it, it is an entrance to Vastothrak here. There is an entrance to Vastothrak in Season 6. And uh, you hear similar music as well. Now, mostly this music, I think, represents the Dothraki horde itself because we'll hear little snippets of it here and there away from Vastothrak. Um, but a lot more on the journey towards Vastothrak or on the journey back from Vastothrak. Those are the places where you tend to hear it. Um, so I'm going to just call it the Vaistothrak theme or the Horde theme. And it really did become a little more important after it reappeared in season six. It was nice of Ramin to go back and mine this little bit of music that he has here uh, and make it into a more present time stretching, you know, stretching over the whole course of the series kind of theme uh, for the Dothraki. It has two components to it, basically. Uh, there is the rhythmic component done by the drums, and there is the melodic component to it um, done by these kind of strange shell horn type things, so very aboriginal kind of sounding instruments in a way. Very eastern, I guess I should say, sounding instruments, maybe not necessarily aboriginal. Nonetheless, you have these two elements, and the drum element is something that can stand on its own. The rhythm that is played, uh, I'll just play it on one note here. The interesting thing about that particular rhythm is, is that it's actually played and layered over the top of itself several times, starting in different beats, starting on different uh, counts, so to speak. Um, to where at some points it becomes a cacophony, and then at some points it, it all gels back together into kind of like a single unison thing. Um, there are a little bit of variations in some of the rhythms in order to make them line up in certain places and totally sound like noise in other places. Um, but that's the basic rhythm uh, that is played on those drums. 
And then the other part, of course, is done in intervals of what we call fourths or fifths. They're um, kind of like uh, guitar power chords, if you think of it like that. A guitar power chord doesn't really have um, what we call the third, something that defines it as to being major or minor. The, it is the, the third in a chord that tells you whether a chord is really happy or sad. And so, therefore, power chords, as I like to call them, the guitar power chords, they can convey whatever emotion that you're seeing on screen. Um, or they can uh, convey um, an implied thing by an actor's expression. You know, if, if an actor is sneering at the camera at the time that you hear power chords, and it probably makes that power chord seem a little more sinister because it doesn't have a, a major third defining it as happy. Uh, at the same time, it doesn't have a minor third defining it as scary either. It kind of leaves things up to the imagination and allows for interpretation. Uh, but that melody again is this. And together they kind of represent the marching of the hordes towards Vaisdothrak. Um, and, and that's apparent in both of the examples that I'm giving you in this particular episode. The one that you just heard, and then uh, the one that we'll hear in just a moment where uh, Danny is being marched towards uh, Vase Dothrak by the Dothraki horde in season six, the very first episode of season six. However, I do want to note that you should treat these elements of this theme as separately also because it's very interesting as soon as you see Jorah and Dario figuring out that Danny has been taken by a Dothraki horde you actually hear the drumming going on to imply the Dothraki horde and it's not until you see Daenerys marching with the horde that you start to hear the the melody portion of it so let's take a listen to that right now Rocky? There you have it. That is a Dothraki theme that we heard prominently in this episode that was recalled in season six. Uh, it's great that uh, he, again, managed to think that he's like, oh, wait a minute, two horse statues. I played some music for season one when we went under two horse statues. Maybe I should check that out. And he brought it back for season six. The other thing that I wanted to do in this musical analysis this time around was to take a look at the Chaos is a Ladder theme once again. Um, for a long time, during my first run with Podcast Winterfell, I called this the Sinister Lannister theme because all of the evidence was pointing towards the Lannisters actually being behind the death of John Aaron. 
everything from Lysa lying to Littlefinger lying about the dagger, you know, all of it seemed to line up straight with the Lannisters being the evil party. And they did have an evil party side to them, but not necessarily for this particular thing. This was all Littlefinger. And of course, eventually this became Littlefinger's theme. But the one thing that I wanted you to hear in this one is Littlefinger's accusations are coming to fruition as he, uh, you know, has pointed out that he gave the dagger to Tyrion Lannister uh, after losing a bet. And so now Catelyn finds Tyrion at the end of the crossroads at the end of this episode, and uh, she accuses him of being, uh, you know, responsible for the murder attempt on her son Bran. And we hear really the, the full iteration of the melody of the theme finally in this episode. It had been building up in different ways uh, throughout the course of the last three episodes. We heard it first in uh, the very first episode, and we heard a little bit of it in other episodes as well. Uh, in, let's see, what was it? Uh, the, the last episode, season one, episode three, Lord Snow. We actually heard it when Jamie and uh, Cersei were talking about Bran. And so that was another reason why it was very easy to associate this theme with the Lannisters. But no, it is in fact that Littlefinger has fooled us all. And uh, Ramin didn't have to worry about making too many adjustments once he found out the truth about Littlefinger being behind everything. So uh, he just started assigning that theme directly to Littlefinger. Or maybe he was told by Dave and Dan because they had obviously read all of the books and knew the truth about Littlefinger already. At any rate, here is the scene uh, with Catelyn telling us that uh, she's going to take Tyrion into custody. He plans to take another wife. Huh. This man came into my house as a guest. And there conspired to murder my son, a boy of ten. In the name of King Robert and the good lords you serve, I call upon you to seize him and help me return him to Winterfell to await the king's justice. And once again, the full iteration of that melody is this. There's no need for further analysis, naturally. Uh, I'm just kind of keeping track of this theme, especially this time around as we do a rewatch, uh, because it's one of the more elusive kind of things that uh, eventually uh, fooled even me, even the, uh, even the music master, so to speak. <laughs> anyway, we'll get into analyzing the episode next.
So, Season 1, Episode 4, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Love that title. Uh, it, of course, reminds me of our buddy Ken, who had a podcast called Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things for about a year um, during the early runs of Game of Thrones. I think Season 2 and 3 is when he started that podcast, and it was a great podcast. Miss Ken a lot. I don't know what he's doing now. He's not podcasting, that's for sure. So, uh, Ken, wherever you are, if you happen to hear this, so I hope you come back sometime and uh, talk to some people uh, about Game of Thrones because your knowledge was always great. Anyway, some things about this particular episode kind of on the surface for me. Um, something I haven't really talked a whole lot about at all is is the map pieces. And it really struck me this time, maybe because I was covering the Vestothrak theme and everything. But uh, I, suddenly I was like, oh, wait, yeah, that's right. Pentos is no longer on the map on the Essos side. It has been replaced with Vestos Rack, probably for a couple of episodes. I just hadn't been paying much attention to the map pieces. But it's always fun to look back and see, you know, which places on the map show up in a particular episode and how well that lines up with the story that is told that particular week or that particular episode. So in this case, uh, Vestothrak was quite appropriate because that's where Danny arrived finally. And and speaking of Danny's troop, uh, this is more on Doria, who is the slave that taught Danny how to rule the bedroom. She's with Viserys now. She does a lot of foreshadowing in this conversation. Uh, in fact, there are three things that we see in season two, by my opinion. Uh, she foreshadows three things that will be seen in season two. One is Dragonglass. She talks about a guy from uh, a shy who has a dagger made of real Dragonglass. And we know that Sam and Grin and Ed... They find the uh, dragon glass uh, at the fist of the first men, um, and it seems kind of fitting that the, the dragon glass is brought up in this very same ep that we meet Sam, um, because the dragon glass and what it can do is one of Sam's bigger contributions to the story thus far. Um, not the biggest. I think the biggest is probably finding out about uh, John's true Targaryen heritage, um, but nonetheless. We do have uh, this dragon glass, very important as far as the long-term stuff. You got to fight off the White Walkers, or it won't matter who John's mommy and daddy were, right? Uh, the second thing that Doria talks about that she tells Viserys that she's seen, she's seen a man who changes faces um, like anyone else changes clothing. And of course, in season two, we meet a faceless man. We meet Jaqen Hagar. So there's another season two, direct season two foreshadowing. He is a faceless man. We see him change his face in front of Arya in uh, Valar Morgulis, the last episode of season two. And the third thing that Doria tells Viserys that I think is supposed to be a direct season two foreshadowing. However, the execution of that foreshadowing maybe didn't quite line up the way that Brian Cogman was hoping um, I think that this pirate wearing all gold and having the sails of multiple colors, I think that was supposed to be Salador San. Now, I get this from the book more so than the show. And let's not forget that Brian Cogman, despite the fact that he decided that it was perfectly okay to make Sansa into Jane Poole, um, very much as a book enthusiast. And so he was using the descriptions of this Salador San character, who is, a, of course, a friend of Davos Seaworth's, 
he was using that description kind of from the book. Um, it definitely more matches up with the book version than it does a TV version. So here, here's what I'm thinking is what happened here. You know, Brian's trying to do the book justice. So he does comes up with this description because he knows Salador San's going to come up in season two. Um, and then either Dave and Dan, um, they chose a different direction for TV because it was maybe too overt a clue. Or maybe Dave and Dan chose because just like me, um, we try to never really pay attention too much to anything that Brian Cogman writes uh, because it just usually bleeps stuff up. <laughs> uh, Sansa season five. Anyway. All right. I'm off my uh, off my horse there. I'm, I'm OK. I'm not going to say anything more. Cogman. <coughs> Choke. Um, anyway, uh, three big things is next. Three, three, three big things. And let's make one thing perfectly clear, folks. I'm not just picking up Brian Cogman for that sound. The decision uh, that was actually Dave and Dan's decision. It was just that Brian Cogman decided to go out on Twitter and make it like it wasn't a big deal. Meanwhile, Dave and Dan, you know, they kind of just hid in the shadows and didn't say anything. Okay, sorry. Soapbox over. Uh, let's, uh, let's get to my three big things here. First big thing, Samwell Tarley. Samwell is us average people's hero, right? He's the guy who, even though he's truly terrified still does things that are bravely heroic in a lot of ways um defending gilly against a white walker later on with the dragon glass which is mentioned by doria as i mentioned earlier uh things like helping john to become lord commander of the night's watch things like standing up to his father um all of these things you know, he he's a scaredy cat. And yet, because he is a scaredy cat, he perhaps has the most bravery of anybody in this series. And that's why we love Samwell. And Samwell is, of course, one of the broken things in this episode. He is so broken. He's had such a terrible childhood because he just wants to be him. There, There's so many cool things about Samwell, even just in this episode. Uh, the notion that John thinks that Molestown wouldn't matter to Sam. And we know that Gilly proves that wrong later on. And his even saying, you know, it's like, well, I know that the, the officers are going down to Molestown and getting them a little sally on the side. You know, I mean, Sam is the realistic one. He's also the one that just questions the whole thing. And believe me, I get it with the Night's Watch. You don't want to have family be the reason that you desert the night's watch when there's a more important thing to guard against up there so i get why there's this whole celibacy thing with the night's watch um but that doesn't mean that sam is wrong to think that it's wrong because it's just human nature right so that that there's things that are just so relatable to sam and yeah, you know, it's easy to sit outside on outside of a TV screen and point and say, look at what a coward. Or, or say, oh man, he's just so wimpy, I, I don't have time for him. No, Sam is actually one of the bravest people in this whole series. 
um, because he does have such fear, and yet he overcomes that fear to do what he does. Love that about Sam. Second big thing, Clegane Bowl. The story is laid out to Sansa and Arya, both of them, here by Littlefinger, because you have to assume that Arya overheard it, since later on in, what is it, season four, she tells the Hound that, you know, she knew the story about the mountain. And then you get a little bit more of the mountain side of it when he tells her that story. But the Hound seems to at least have a reason for him being such a ugly kind of person, right? He's got some trauma. He's got some baggage, you know, whereas the mountain in this case seems like he's just, for no reason at all, just evil. Which, hey, you know, I had a little sister. I have a little sister. You know, if she was playing with my toys, I'd probably take them back away from her. I don't think I'd shove her face in a fire. Man, that's just a little bit insane, you know? And that's what the mountain is. The mountain is also the one that we hear later on, Oberyn Martell, say that you raped my sister, you killed her children. Um, that, you know, Oberyn is the one who points out that the mountain has never stopped being evil. He's been evil all the way through. And for those of you who haven't been on the planet for the last four years, um, well, even since this very first episode ever aired, I think even TV people were going, oh, someday we're going to see this huge battle between the mountain and the hound, and they're going to face off finally and settle their differences. Well, now the mountain is dead already, in a way. The hound... I'm not sure what kind of path he's on. So I suppose uh, we can later on question whether Clegane Bowl will actually happen in the way that we think it will. One would think that the mountain would actually be quite helpful in the battle against the White Walkers and such, since he can't seemingly be killed any more than the Whites can be killed. But... Once again, Clegane Bowl, that's my second big thing out of this because we get that. It's amazing that after Sansa and Arya hear this story, Sansa still fears the Hound very much because she takes Littlefinger's words very seriously. Don't ever utter this or, you know, the Hound will kill you. Whereas Arya, being Arya, uses that story later on. Uh, well, you know, you might think that Arya was generating a little bit of sympathy for the Hound when she was telling him that. She didn't like the Hound that much then. I, part of it might have just been her, you know, just trying to stick it to the Hound just a little bit too. So that's kind of sad. But, you know, Arya's, by that point, had already been set down the path to become this vengeance-seeking killer. So we'll have to see what happens uh if Arya and the Hound ever meet up again, what will happen there? Or if Sansa and the Hound ever meet up again? Um, I think that uh, both Sansa and Arya will uh, treat the Hound with a little more respect if they ever see him again. My third big thing is Daenerys. She's finally established her superiority in the bedroom over Drogo. In the last episode, we saw her exhibiting herself as the Khaleesi telling the whole tribe to stop. And when Viserys challenges that, uh, she's, people come to her aid. But here, in this episode, 
Daenerys stands up for herself over Viserys. And that is huge because now she has become the dragon and he is no longer the dragon. Although he will continue to try to be the dragon. Um, But the personal dynamic between Daenerys and Viserys flips. So those are my three big things. Here's some questions for us. Questions. Questions. The most obvious question is, who are the cripples, the bastards, and the broken things in this episode and throughout the series? Cripples. Well, you have Bran, obviously. He is a cripple. And perhaps a broken thing, in a way, that his dreams. We heard uh, Arya talk about how Bran always wanted to be a knight, how that wasn't going to happen. Um so, you know, his dreams have been shattered as well as as his abilities. Although it's nice that Tyrion does give him that saddle with which he can ride. Um, that way he can stand as tall as any man, at least in the saddle, as Tyrion says, and that's great. And I think that probably, you know, Tyrion himself is a broken thing in that way. Um, he's made to feel like he's not part of the Lannister family simply because he is a dwarf. Even though we see him championing a lot of stuff in this particular episode. Um, and uh, it almost seems like at the end when Catelyn's accusing him of what she's accusing him of, it just doesn't seem quite correct because he is curious as to what Bran knows. And it doesn't seem like the kind of curiousness as to what Bran remembers where it's like, oh, we got to take care of Bran. It's like he just wants the knowledge of what Bran saw or what caused Bran to fall. Here, instead, um, you know, he's helping Bran as best he can. And uh, so that makes it seem like he isn't the person that Catelyn should be taking under arrest, even though all of the evidence that Catelyn has been given, let's remember this, all of the evidence that Catelyn has been given has pointed towards the Lannisters. Her own sister, who she never should have trusted, and Littlefinger, who she never should have trusted. She did make poor choices in who she trusted. But I don't think that she knows that her sister Lysa has gone crazy crazy. I don't think that she should suspect that Littlefinger would not tell her the truth because obviously Littlefinger is still in love with her. So she has... I guess instinctually made the correct choice as far as her own mind goes. But in the actual reality, um, choosing to uh, trust Littlefinger and Lysa and what they've said is not the best thing. Anyway, Tyrion becomes the broken thing, um, another broken thing. But of course, Sam is the primary broken thing in this episode. So I've covered the cripples and the broken things. How about the bastards? Well, on a first watch, you would say John, obviously, because he even brings that up with Sam when they're talking about why John doesn't want to be with a woman anymore. And then you have Gendry, of course, who Ned figures out is Robert Baratheon's bastard. But now we know that John really isn't a bastard. So really, the only bastard that I see in this particular episode, other than a quick shot of Joffrey, is Gendry. Joffrey's a bastard because he's not of a true uh, marriage. He's not born out of a true marriage. Not saying that he isn't born out of love. I'm just saying that he's not born out of true marriage. 
Um, but Gendry is the one who is born out of the line of marriage. Um, even John was born in marriage. Um, if you have any other thoughts on who are bastards or broken things or cripples in this particular episode, feel free to write to me. That's Matt's audio blog, M-A-T-T-S, audio blog at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at Matt's G-O-T blog, M-A-T-T-S, G-O-T blog. My second question, something that was never really answered, and I don't know how it could be answered now, unless the mountain just comes out and says it, is was the mountain hired to kill Sir Hugh? Or was it just coincidence that Sir Hugh, the one guy with possible information about John Aaron's death, was killed now that Ned Stark is in town? I honestly, and I, I know I'm not supposed to really give takes because I'm an anti-take kind of guy, but I honestly think it was just a coincidence. I don't think the mountain could have made his lance shatter the way it did and stick into Sir Hugh's neck the way it did. Maybe he could. Maybe the mountain is just that good. Maybe he is. I don't know. But Littlefinger definitely benefits because the Cleganes are Lannister men. And so the whole accusation that he set up with Lysa and with the whole Tyrion dagger thing, he set up all of this and it looks even more like the Lannisters are behind everything because the Cleganes, who are Lannister men, end up killing the one guy who might have any information. And let's face it, Sir Hugh had information. That's why he was elevated to the knighthood because he was just a squire before that. Nah, I don't think that he uh, got elevated just because suddenly his skills were better or because somebody thought he deserved it. So he definitely had the information. I'm just not sure that he was killed on purpose because he had the information. I will say that everybody who needed to benefit from him being killed did benefit from him being killed, obviously, as we see by the end of this episode. Now, uh, we talked about this just briefly, but is Clegane Bowl still a possibility. And, and from a book perspective, I would honestly hope not, because uh, those of us who have read the books and seen uh, what we've seen would probably just assume there there not be. Um, I think from a TV perspective, it still is a possibility, although less likely a possibility than before. And again, I would hope to see the Mountain and the Hound, at least in the course of fighting the White Walkers, fight side by side. And then if they want to have it out afterwards, well, I'm fine with that. I mean, I think it'd be a fun battle. We already see, in the next episode, kind of a mini Clegane Bowl happen. Um, so maybe we've already gotten our Clegane Bowl. We'll talk about that in the next episode, I suppose. Some other little tidbits here. Tidbits. tidbits. I really loved the aspect of everybody having spies. The queen had spies in there. Even though in later seasons we see that the queen uses Littlefinger and his spy network. And Varys and his spy network. But for now she has to have her own set of spies. Varys has spies obviously. Naturally his little birds as well as whoever's in this courtyard. And then of course Littlefinger has his own spies. So... um you get an idea of how the politics really work in this town uh, just with Littlefinger's little demonstration. Um, and that pretty much holds true uh, throughout the rest of the series. 
in case you didn't already know, um, this gives you an idea as to why Varys and Littlefinger both knew that Catelyn was coming to town, right? So that's that, I guess. Another little tidbit here, Jory, who is the son of Roderick Cassell, and in his conversation with Jamie, uh, they remark about the scar near his eye. That's an interesting foreshadowing right there because Jamie will actually stick Jory Cassell, he'll stick a, a, a knife through Jory's eye in just like an episode. Is it the next episode? I can't remember. It's very soon. Um, so Jory's about to lose it. But him and Jamie both talking about Thoros of Mirror for a second. Um, and we're going to meet him uh, in season, what is it? Season three, I think is when Thoros of Mirror first shows up. Uh, but they mention him already. So there's a couple of little foreshadowings just in Jory and Jamie's conversation as well. And one other tidbit here, and it's maybe would be a big thing for some of you, one of the three big things for some of you who love this relationship so much, but this is where Tyrion and Bronn meet for the first time. And Tyrion offers money and, and Bronn takes it. That's pretty much the the status of their relationship all the way through season four. Um, I'm not sure whether Bronn had to get money in order to set up the meeting between Tyrion and Jamie in season seven or not. Um, or if he just did that because he wanted to see two people who were paying him well, join forces and, and pay him even better. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But since they're on opposing sides, uh, Bronn kind of becomes a, a tug of war guy. You know, I mean, I know Tyrion was hoping that Jamie and Cersei would join his side in the fight against the White Walkers, but obviously Cersei's not going to do that. Looks like Jamie is, actually. The only problem is, is that Bronn didn't really leave with Jamie, unless Jamie summons for him and he's just following up later. Um, so Bronn gets left behind. After putting the two together, and Jamie's going to go join Tyrion, and Cersei's going to be left all alone um, at the end of season seven. So, anyway, here's the basis of the friendship between Tyrion and Bronn. It's a single gold coin uh, because Bronn offers to give up his room to Tyrion. One final thing is just a little set of words that Gendry said to Ned that was the key to everything as far as Ned unraveling the mystery of John Aaron or what John Aaron was looking for, even though I'm not sure that this is exactly why John Aaron was killed. I think John Aaron was killed just because Littlefinger said to Lysa, Hey, I'll marry you. We'll, we'll rule the Eyrie together. I think that's why John Aaron was killed. I really don't think it had anything to do with the fact that John Aaron was onto what the Lannisters were. Um, even though the Lannisters obviously knew, at least Jamie and Cersei knew that John Aaron knew something about them because they mentioned that the very first time we ever see the both of them on screen together in the first episode. But nonetheless, uh, two words that Gendry says, yellow hair. When he remembers his mother, she had yellow hair, yet he was born with dark hair. And the words from Maester Pycelle, the seed is strong. All of it fits together to tell you that Joffrey and Marcella and Tommen probably aren't Robert's kids. And that 
is all that I have for this particular episode. Uh, we still got a couple more segments left, though. Three Words is next. Three Words. Describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase. To hear those three little words. That's John Pizzarelli performing Three Little Words right there thanks again john for letting me use that cut and uh for extending it by cutting it up many times i appreciate that anyway uh, three words this is where you try to describe this particular episode in three words and my three words are pretty easy this time simply because there was so much of it and that is tons of foreshadowing i mean there's more foreshadowing in this app than I think any of the prior apps, at least by quantity, maybe not necessarily by quality, because Jon Snow basically coming right out and saying, I am not a Stark, uh, you know, and having the stag and the wolf both be dead. Those are pretty big foreshadowings in the very first episode. I mean, in terms of quality. Now, in terms of quantity, though, I think we had more foreshadowings in this episode than we have had in any prior that's probably one of those arrogant Cogman things. Oh, look, I read the books. So I'm going to tell you what you're going to see in the next seasons to come. Can you tell I'm not a big fan of Brian Cogman? Okay, I'll shut up now. What would your three-word description of this episode be? Would you say other things? You can let me know. If you get everything in by June 2nd, 2018, midnight your time, wherever you are in the world, any feedback regarding season one, any episode, just let me know what episode you're talking about. And if you want to submit three words or brothel mates of the episode or whatever, that's great. We're going to have big segments in our special feedback, season one feedback episode, which will follow the 10 reviews of season one that I'm doing like this. We'll have a special one where I'll put everything together shortly after June 2nd. That one will come out. And that'll be right before we start season two. All you have to do is submit your three words for each of the episodes, if you wish. That's perfectly fine. Just make sure you get them to me again by June 2nd, 2018. That's midnight deadline of that date, wherever you are in the world. If you're in Moscow, it's midnight, June 2nd in Moscow. If you're in Beijing, it's midnight, June 2nd in Beijing. If you're in uh, Denver, it's midnight, June 2nd in Denver. You get the idea. So, those are my three words. What are yours? Let me know. Again, Matt's audio blog, M-A-T-T-S audio blog at gmail.com. Or you can uh, send a tweet to at Matt's, M-A-T-T-S G-O-T blog on Twitter. Brothel mates of the episode next. Mates of the episode, the best couplings of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. 
V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can love. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning, or if you've been with me when I was doing Podcast Winterfell since back in 2012, was it? 11, 12, somewhere in there. Uh, Whenever season two of Game of Thrones started, that's when I came on. Anyway, if you've been with us that long, then you know what this segment is about. It's about finding the best coupling of the episode. That doesn't necessarily have to be two people. That can be a person and an ideological thing, or a person and a physical object, or two philosophies. I don't know. Any best coupling that you can come up with, they become the brothel mates of the episode. For me, it's Tyrion and Bronn. The budding of a beautiful relationship started with the flashing of gold. I mean, that's what basically being a brothel maid is about right one guy flashes gold the other person devotes their service and um you know it's not a really very pleasing aspect but basically they are literally brothel mates in one way and that Tyrion is buying brawn um, but they do come up with a pretty good uh, relationship as they go along because brawn isn't your typical prostitute you know he demands more money he gives his opinion um, I don't think any of Littlefinger's girls would be quite that way. Or if they were, he'd quickly get them into submission about that because you see what he does to Roz later on in terms of getting Roz to not be upset about all of the Baratheon bastards being killed. And it's at season two, I believe. We see a pretty dirty side to Littlefinger there. So those are my brothel mates of this episode, Tyrion and Bronn. Born to love. Born to love money, anyway. What are your brothel mates of the episode? Let me know. Once again, Matt's audio blog, M-A-T-T-S, audio blog at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at Matt's, M-A-T-T-S-G-O-T blog on Twitter. You can follow me, too, if you want. Although, really, all I do is just promote the episodes on that Twitter Um, If you want to follow me on my personal Twitter, that's at Musical Concepts, that's fine too. Be back with some closing thoughts here in just a second. Thanks once again for joining me this time around. We'll have a new episode for you on Monday with the next episode. I think it's The Lion and the Wolf, but I don't have my notes in front of me right now to tell you. Uh, You probably know what episode it is that's coming up next. It's episode five of season one of Game of Thrones. And if you have any feedback regarding this podcast or regarding uh, the like submitting feedback for episodes or the brothel mates of the episode or three words june 2nd 2018 is your deadline matt's audio blog at gmail.com it's m-a-t-t-s audio blog at gmail.com or at matt's g-o-t blog on twitter m-a-t-t-s g-o-t blog on twitter don't forget all of the music is in the show notes please support the artists that i put up here 
because they've been kind enough to let me put them up here. And so I want to do them a solid as well. And finally, please, please, please search for me on whatever podcast app that you like to use most, be that Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google Play or whatever. Please do your search in that podcast app, Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. I will pop up. That's the only way I'll pop up. I won't pop up in just Game of Thrones search engines. Uh, There's just too many podcasts out there, and I'm at the bottom of the list, and I don't want to be at the bottom of the list anymore. I want us to build a community of people who are willing to contribute three words and and brothel mates of the episode and thoughtful thoughts uh, regarding each episode of Game of Thrones. So please spread the word, tell a friend, and again, find the podcast in your favorite podcast app or the one that you use the most, and subscribe and leave me a written review. Thanks for tolerating my begging. Also, take care. (laughs) 